Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, I'm Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network with a special mini-series in landscape architecture. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And I have a set of very special guests here for you today. Uh, the book is GGN Landscapes, 1999 to 2018, written by Thais Way, published by Timber Press, Portland, Oregon, in 2018. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Hi. Nice to be here. Uh, let's start with uh, Thais. Uh, could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, and we'll take it each uh, one of you at a time. Excellent. So I am currently the director at Dunbar and Oaks, directing their Garden and Landscape Studies program. And Dunbar and Oaks is the research library and collection in Washington, D.C., but part of Harvard University. I'm also a professor of landscape history at the University of Washington. Next. Don't be shy. I'll, I'll uh, go next. I'm Shannon Nickel. I'm a founding partner here at uh, GGN, and I've been uh, here since we started the company in 1999, which was just a couple of years after I graduated with my bachelor's of landscape architecture from the University of Washington here in Seattle. And my role uh, at GGN is Overseeing with several of my colleagues, including Rodrigo, our design program and practice aspects of the firm. And Go ahead. I am uh, Rodrigo Bella. I'm a principal at GGN. I've, I've been with GGN uh, since 2000, so almost uh, the whole time. Um, and I, uh, I came to architecture, landscape architecture in sort of a tortured way. I started as an engineering graduate uh, from Cornell uh, in undergrad. The architecture school at UVA, and then found my way to landscape architecture school at UVA. Um, so it, it's been a, a roundabout row. Um, I started in Seattle, but uh, I actually uh, moved to back home to DC, and uh, I've been running um, our East Coast work and you know, some of our other work from from an office here uh, for 15 years or so. Okay, let's start with uh, what was your motivation, everybody, for uh, for putting together this book. I'll go ahead and start as the outsider. So um, it really started with, I arrived in Seattle in 2007 um, to teach landscape history in a landscape architecture program. And I really think of landscape history as the grounding foundation for landscape architecture practice of the future. So I really see us looking at the past, how it shapes our future. And so I became interested in the local firms and through a variety of methods ended up both meeting Shannon and Jennifer, um, two of the founders of GGN, but more importantly, ending up in their gardens and their public places around the country. And I remember landing in Lori Garden and realizing, oh, this is designed by those 
that firm that I had met in Seattle and actually texting uh, texting them and tell them. And actually, I have to laugh because last weekend I was in Chicago in Lori Garden in the winter um, and thinking about this interview and thinking how much ending up in their spaces and then getting to know them, which is really the crux of what inspired me was that they do these beautiful public realm, which is what I'm interested in, particularly urban public realm. But they're also really interested in the history of sites and in the process of design. And we can talk about this more later, but for me, the book became a way of exploring this process that leads to the public realm, but is grounded in a historical knowledge and in paying really close attention to the process of design, which I hope came through the book, that it's less about the, the people and the characters as it is about the design process and how one goes from arriving at a site that has its own history and then implementing a new a new story for it or a new narrative or an alternative narrative or refined uh, whatever's appropriate to that site. So that was really my, my, my from my point of view, um, Shannon and Rodrigo can talk about more what it was like from inside the firm. Well, I remember getting those texts from the newcomer to Seattle. Uh, um, Seattle folks, I think it's really a true thing that um, although we're all from different places, so I don't know why this is a commonality, uh, but we don't tend to be very aggressive about reaching out to each other socially. But Taiza had been in town for not too long, and I started receiving these texts that sometimes she wouldn't even sign off with her name, but I just get this photo of one of our faces. Something like, you know, in your space or, you know, uh, here's what it looks like today or, or something like that. And uh, uh, realizing that she was really curious about the work and also would judge for herself um, the, the outcomes and how the historic stories that we try to weave into contemporary design uh, may play out in the way people use the spaces today. So it was a little nerve wracking to be honest, to know that she was looking carefully and visiting all of our, um, all of our sites. Um, and I think that's part of why we were thrilled when Taiza agreed to do writing for the book, um, because it was bringing an objective voice that we really respect and one that understands that not only is history important in contemporary design, especially of the landscape, but Taiza understands that the present tense is important in history and um, that there's not necessarily a separation between the two. Uh, sometimes we kind of categorize one into being uh, sort of a precious thing in a jar and, and then the other thing is this sterile new thing that separated from it. But um, Anyway, that the sort of complexity of weaving times and stories together um, and the embrace of that, which Taiza has shown in her other writings um, about whether it's about Rich Haig or women in practice and landscape architecture, um, seemed uh, exciting to sort of bring into an examination of our process. And I guess I'll, I'll jump in here and, and just talk about it from... Uh, from the, from the scope of the idea of reflecting on the body of work, uh, we over you know two decades we've been incredibly fortunate to have an almost nonstop series of really wonderful projects 
Um, but in in doing all these projects, it's been like a sprint the whole time. It never slows down. And so the opportunity to take a breather and, and look at the projects as a collective body of work and sort of reflect on uh, you know their successes, their lessons, and, and as part of that, our process and how we refine our process, regardless of what kind of project or what typology, you know, there are commonalities in how we approach any site and, and any design. And so using this as a opportunity to you know, reflect on those ideas and really uh, hone in on what are those things that are uh, making our process work so well. And, you know, in that span, we've grown from, I think when I started, we were seven people and, you know, we were close to 40 or even approaching 50, uh, I think, at the time we were writing the book. And so, uh, you know, as, as the firm has grown, you know, deliberately and steadily, uh, our ability to um, allow others within the firm to, you know, express themselves and have a voice, but there's still some sort of coherent uh, method that uh, binds us all together. And even though the projects don't look the same, there's, uh, you know, the DNA of the firm is expressing themselves. So, you know, digging into that was a, a great opportunity that so we'll go to my first question then. We doc, we've just touched on a little bit. So drawing to think uh, in this chapter. So what is drawing to think? And um, what do you mean by whoever draws it first owns it? <laughs> Shannon, how about you on that one? Starting back. Okay, since I, I laughed. Uh, yeah, um, it's so drawing to think for us. Um, it's both a little bit of a um, correcting the record, and it's also an advocacy for other professionals and young people to um, use drawing as a tool. We use hand drawing a lot, um, not exclusively, but we do still um, respect it and hold it pretty central as a working tool in our office. And the reason for that isn't for its visual style or um, the sort of fetish of craft, which I know sometimes um, hand drawing can kind of be put in that box. We simply admire it as an unmatched tool for bringing out abstract and overarching organizational notions or questions or... um, comparative challenges that are in can be in a person's mind and can be shared by a group of people but are very difficult to accurately capture uh, using more of a data entry type um, interface in software so we had that chapter and actually it's an emphasis throughout the book in in drawing to think which is um, that's definitely Thais's way of helping to explain some of these things using words. Um, we emphasize that because we want to be sure that this book isn't just a, kind of a glossy um, group of, even though uh, Catherine Ty's photos are exquisite um, uh, and we're really lucky to have them. It's not just about those finished products that we're really sharing what happens in landscape architecture, that you're solving problems and that the human mind is struggling and searching and finding ways to organize a whole storm of thoughts into these different notions and diagrams and gestures that 
bit by bit, start to frame things into a design approach that's specific to that site and it intuitively includes all these sorts of apples and oranges of historic stories, geology, ecology, experience that would be very difficult to fuse into um, a few visuals if you were using standard um, uh, software. Let me, Shannon, can I jump in there? Yeah, please. Um, I I absolutely agree with that. And I would add, uh, Trish, that part of that, to build it, two things that I think of that are really important that I want to emphasize that I, to me, emerge out of what Shannon's saying. One is this book, because it's about process and in some way was written with a student or a young designer in mind. Because it's not a book just to celebrate of look at our awesome projects, aren't we brilliant, which they could do. And, and those are wonderful books. It's really a book about process. And it's a book that, that suggests that beautiful design does not just arrive whole as a whole out of someone's brilliant mind in one idea. It's not that these things, you know, the brilliant artist sits down on the day that it's due and flows through, you know, uh, suddenly has the the idea, although sometimes, right, sometimes there are those breakthrough moments. Um, but the design is really a way of thinking, and drawing is is one really important tool, and I consider even digital drawing in there. So any way that's visually thinking about design to emphasize, A, that designs, concepts, approaches emerge, they develop over time. Um, and again, sometimes you get a brilliant idea early on and that just carries through, but often they morph and they change and, and you can see that in the drawing. The, the flip side of that is, again, just to emphasize that, there, that the process of design really does shape the final place. And I think so often as critics and historians, and this is true in history textbooks and so much of criticism today, we look at the final project, you know, generally on opening day, and, and we critique it that day, right? And it looks good or it doesn't look good or it makes sense or it doesn't make sense. And we don't often spend time thinking about both how did the design come to be and then where is it going to go over time? And I think, again, drawing, because some of the drawings you'll see are thinking about how to develop an idea, but they're also thinking about what is this place going to be like? as it matures, what what are the spaces going to be like? What kind of character might it have? And so those are all ways of thinking. And then I would just add, as the writer, drawing to think is my own critique of historians, again, who so often look at the final product, look at some final drawings, right? The drawings you give your client to put up over the mantelpiece or frame. And, and that's all we work on. We don't necessarily look at some of the early pieces to think about, so what was the struggle? What were the questions at hand? How did they handle those? Which questions did they tend to leave aside? Or in this case, because I got to look at a whole series of designs, what ideas keep bubbling up? Um, and you see them coming back in different iterations in the drawings. Um, and so for me, that's also the drawing to think. And if I, uh, if I jump in to address the second part of your question about uh, whoever draws it first owns it, I think that really uh, addresses two, two aspects. Uh, the first, I think, is the collaborative nature of what we do. And in a lot of the book you'll see, it's, it's about collaboration. This isn't about a signature designer uh, leading an office. or uh, It really is a collective working together. And 
the fact that a design could come from you know one of the principal's hands, or it could come from a designer's hand who's working on the project. You know, a good design is a good design. It doesn't matter who who came up with it. Uh, so I think that's the first part of it. But then the second part of it um, really comes down to um, that sense of responsibility and ownership for a design. In other words, an idea can start as fanciful and you know wonderful, what if, but it ultimately uh, has to be built into the, the, the responsibility for taking an idea and uh, nourishing it and taking it through the fine details to something that's constructible, buildable, and durable. Uh, requires you know a certain amount of investment in time, and we we tend to take our projects all the way through the process. We don't just you know, come up with design and let someone else build it. And what you have to recognize in, in in doing that is that you know as we distill our designs to their essence, every little move becomes essential. And you know moving one piece or changing something has a big ripple effect. And so the person who's owning a design that uh, you know they're putting forward really understands how it's innerly tied to everything else. And so the importance of seeing something all the way through also keeps the integrity of the design whole uh, as things change, whether it be budget or programmatic changes or unforeseen circumstances. Yeah, and I would just add the other reason that phrase resonated with me as a teacher um, is when I'm critiquing student designs or I'm going into an office, and, and we've all had this happen. People will tell me ideas, and I have to sit there and say, it's great that it's in your head. Until you put it down on paper and tell me how you'll make this happen, um, it's going to be very hard for A, it to ever happen, and B, for us to really talk about it. So the importance of taking that ownership that Rodrigo talked about and being willing to put the, the pen to paper and start thinking about, okay, if this is my idea, and I have to figure out how, how I make this happen and, and what's important and how it shapes the larger space. And that requires and has the privilege of an ownership. We have seen that at so many of the schools that mm -hmm. we visit, mm -hmm. which was, I mean, as, this, as we're discussing this, I'm remembering what a sense of purpose this brought to uh, the direction that we took with the book. We so this is both um, a specific story, but something that represents I don't know a hundred different observations I've had, both of folks um, in school and young professionals. There's a hesitance to draw a section if it's part of an assignment or part of um, the process that's being suggested, and the reason why the given student or young professional doesn't want to draw this section is they don't know what the section is yet. So there's this chicken and egg conundrum of, well, I don't know what my landform is yet, so I shouldn't draw a section yet because it'll be wrong. And yet the section, draw, the exercise of drawing the section is intentionally a provocation to develop your own set of questions about and, and to see for yourself the surface area of the problem that you need to solve or um, what this thing is that you need to bring some order to. But confronting that kind of task, which is the fundamental definition of what design is, when one is used to getting very specific assignments, maybe even with prescriptions about graphic style and um, color and pen weights, when one hasn't necessarily had a lot of practice being completely responsible for generating content. That's what we're seeing a lot of. 
and, you know, in the most, in the excellent programs, excellent schools, um, hardworking students, um, just haven't had that experience and don't necessarily have their heads wrapped around how undefined and messy and unscripted the process of design is, which is wonderful. It's, it's a wonderful process, but if you're not used to it, um, it feels frustrating and, and like, like you're doing something wrong. So we just wanted to sort of show that never goes away and it's supposed to be part of being a designer. Uh, you know, I have another podcast that talks about that. I'll send that to you later. <laughs> for this, another, yes, yeah, a common thing. So take, I'll, I'll have to send it to you. So how does that all relate then to your Lori Garden? Uh, I was going to say the design process. So how was that really messy for you? Oh, well, let's see. <laughs> how was it messy? Uh, it, I think... Um, well, for a few reasons that are maybe a little unique to that project, that was our first major competition as an office. And we just opened the office. We didn't have money to go to Chicago. None of us had been there before. So in terms of mess, there was a whole lot of white space we needed to fill in our minds to understand what this place was, how to capture the place enough to get a concept that was valid and worthy in the competition. And then you know, certainly um, expecting to spend a lot of time on the site in the city um, if we were lucky enough to, to win the competition, which we were. So the, the mess was um, it, stuffing, as particularly for me, stuffing my head with pretty much anything I could get my hands on in terms of uh, nonfiction, fiction books, uh, any maps, references, um, Anything I could understand about food, uh, let's see, meats, music, <laughs> um, you, you just sort of start with this, um, and it's a little bit like the blank sheet of paper I was just talking about with the section. You start with this empty space um, and this real fear of not only not knowing enough about a place to be qualified to work there, but you want to know enough about the place that you can synthesize, use an intuition to synthesize what the real soul of a landscape is. So there was certainly a messy process of research and, um, um, you know, where you don't know if it's all going to add up to point you in the right direction, but it somehow kind of gels in your mind after you just hungrily, devour everything you can about a place. Um, and, you know, ideally this also normally includes site visits, but it didn't in that um, case. And then um, working and working and working competitions are messy. Um, sometimes they can be strangely efficient because you allow the mess of intuition and fast layering and fast impulses to guide your design process. And you could very quickly have to come up with an approach and a story and you stick with it. Um, and the Lurie Garden as a competition was no exception to that. Um, the fact that it was collaborative, it was a co collaboration with the wonderful Pete Udolph, whom we um, partnered with because he had been working with North American uh, Chicago region native plants uh, uh, remotely in Europe, um, when no one domestically was doing as much, um, 
of his kind of beautiful work with them. So the fact that it was an international collaboration across distance, um, developing this botanical garden of native prairie plants that were at that time perceived locally as being weeds, um, largely, which is hard to imagine now. Uh, there was, um, I wouldn't necessarily say that was messy, but it's definitely another, um, there's a lot of texture there and, and, um, weaving in each other's work and one person changes something on their side and then you have to adjust your thing and, and it goes back and forth that way. So it's an extra factor. Rodriguez. Um, I, I guess I, I would say the, uh, you know, all of what Shannon said, plus on top of that, you know, we, we were working on top of a garage and we were working with, uh, you know, there's one set of architects uh, under us. There's another, uh, uh, Frank Gehry, an architect behind us. Renzo Piano is doing the project in front of us and trying to get all those pieces to talk to each other and, and coordinate uh, into a cohesive whole uh, while maintaining the independence of each piece is, you know, extremely messy, and uh, but you know that's that's the process that uh, those conversations, um, and you know going back to what Shannon talked about, you know drawing the section and the uh, hesitancy between students. I think part of the reason uh, our collaborations are successful uh, is that when we are looking at these designs, and Lori's a great example of this. We all we usually start out thinking spatially and abstractly, and so whether it's a hedge that's making a wall or it's a building. Uh, or it's the roof of a garage, you know, thinking through uh, what those pieces are and not treating them as too precious because we understand all these things are malleable and in, in conversations can be adjusted to accommodate the design of the activity. And so having the ability to have those conversations uh, with some confidence, I think, is part of the success of the project. And, you know, I'm going to add, and I don't know that you actually meant me to answer that as well, but. Um, I would argue that one of the messy or maybe just complex part of writing about Lori Garden, and, and this is, I think of this as often the conundrum about writing about design, is that the best design is best experience in person, right? You know, we there are some beautiful designs that are beautifully written about, and we've had those places where we went and it didn't quite live up to the writing. Um, but a big, much bigger challenge is when the place is remarkable to walk through and experience and then to find the words and the images that can begin to convey that. Um, and Lori Garden was one of those places that I'm going to argue walking through and just having done it again last weekend in the winter when it's, you know, it's not full of flowers and the landform is really clear and the structure of the bones are really um, elegant there to try to find the words. And so for me, that chapter bringing together the words with the images and the drawings. So again, it wasn't just a coffee table. Here are beautiful images of Lori Garden, and boy, you should put it on your list to go. But here's a story about this place that might tell you something that will actually enhance your visit. And for me as a writer, that's always the challenge is I don't want to write a tour guide that just tells you what you'd already find out if you went. I want you to read something so when you go, you actually have a different experience because you know more. So knowing how Lori Garden came to be and all those iterations of what the proportions and the landform and where the divide should be and what things stayed, I you know I hope that's the kind of story that lets somebody read it and then go and have an even richer experience of an already remarkable place. 
Oh, yeah. Well, and I'll say for the, since this is a listening audience, uh, yeah, the book is, is really beautiful. You know, I know it's about your firm, but um, yeah, you've got a, a really nice uh, design balance, shall I say, of uh, yeah, hand drawings, photography, and, and lots of text too, because, uh, and, and process that, you know, sometimes other books kind of lack. Um, and uh, so it's really great that you were able to, to find the words for your design. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and, uh, and it's kind of funny. The next page that I just really jumped out at me, and maybe it's because of the hand drawings, and and I love the simplicity of it. Uh, was the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation campus? Um, can you tell me a little bit about that uh, project, and and why did you enjoy it? Why did you put it in a book? That's a a great question. Um, we were honored to be charged with helping to tell the story of such an incredible organization that does real good around the world. And um, that can be a little intimidating and and, um, almost overwhelming to a designer to try to encapsulate that story in their given medium. Um, So you know, it, it certainly was a relief to actually just start digging into this project with our clients and the architects in BBJ that we were working with. I think we put it in the book because we found to us and, and what also worked for our client and for the architect, the solution we found for telling the story was actually in the history of the site itself. It, and um, at first glance, it might seem underwhelming for the scale of the work, the philanthropy um, that's happening in, in this site. But it was, a um, that, you know, when we started the project, it was this 13-acre parking lot that felt like this real back-of-house, um, highway arterial kind of place in Seattle. And um, I remember at several community meetings, um, even community members were saying, well, no one's ever going to walk there. Why are you showing people on the sidewalks? Um, and, and, you know, that just happens as cities develop and places that you think aren't really made for people anymore. You realize there's nothing wrong with this piece of land. We've just been oddly rebranded by roadway infrastructure for a while. So there was that hurdle to get over in our own perception of the site that it had this potential. But then when we realized the site used to be a um, up until quite recently, because Seattle's a very new place, um, it was a sedge bog with some open water and hundreds of feet under the site as they were digging out for the parking garage. They found this hundreds of feet of uh, decomposed uh, sedge organic material and as we dug in deeper and also realized the way the indigenous people um, used and highlighted this place as actually a, a special place, a destination place to go because of its, the, the wet meadow nature of it and how um, rich and fertile that landscape was and how opposite that is to the way we treat wet landscapes in our cities. They're often uh, the last places to be developed. They're inconvenient and they end up being where freeways and parking lots are put. Um, going through that adventure of these 
flipping values on their heads in the conventional values of our times um, and realizing this is actually one of the most precious and interesting sites in our whole city. And if we bring back this so-called humble um, sedge and reed bog, we collect the rainwater, um, find a way to do that on rooftops. Actually, the, the mantra of the foundation internally is about being humble and mindful in their work. They see themselves as this almost this sort of transparent vector for the good work by their grantees, as opposed to the foundation having the spotlight on it itself. And so this low key kind of landscape, natural landscape, that's has this hidden superpower of fertility and functions that it performs ended up being a great fit. And everyone in the project got very interested in the landscape history of the site. And um, so that felt wonderful to have, you know, what we were doing and what we were handling was interesting to everyone. So we tried to tell that story a bit about what you don't see if you just, you know, drive by and look at it or, or necessarily um, take a quick tour. And then how do you make that into a language of detailing and planting um, that works on a, on a rooftop? Because we didn't have the actual, you know, hundreds of feet of peat below um, that we could expose um and I, sorry, I, think yeah. the, I think the other thing that's really powerful about that project two things one is that humbleness which i think is really there the plant materials and the design but it does not equal um weak or we tend to think humble means that the landscape is going to just be setting or background or something um not you know that doesn't get in your face and yet it's an incredibly strong landscape that builds on its own site. And then I, I was also fascinated by the fact that it really, I think the strength of that landscape helps to make the whole site and those buildings also work. And that's partly the images in there of the buildings and the various ideas and the text about the form of the building. This is a case where I think the landscape really made, pulled it all together and in its elegant and humble, strong um, and foundational, it helps create this larger site that reflects the Gates Foundation, but also reflects, to me, some of the best ideas about how sites can be designed in a collaborative and really thoughtful, elegant way and, and still not be uh, in your face or a sort of egotistical piece, it can, it can be beautiful. I, I, I guess I'm fascinated by this idea that it's both humble and strong. It holds its place and it's very much of its place, uh, which I think really pulls the whole place together. And I think as an as a example of how we work and how we approach uh, the work, one of the things that really stands out in the plan is uh, you know, taste in Chinese words humble, but you know, I think the there's a simplicity to the geometries that you know there, there's no no swoopy thing or no nothing trying to call attention to itself. There is something that uh, is really based on the rigor of carrying the conceptual idea through mm -hmm. at, all, at all levels, plan level, detail level, mm -hmm. and relying on uh, the power and strength of the the conceptual. Uh, continuity across the design details yeah. and not on some uh, geometric or pattern making or anything like right. that. 
right. that I think really comes through in the plans. And I think it's something we, we strive for uh, in all our projects is to distill something down to its essence, but really find that essence uh, and uh, trust that the conceptual grounding in the site and its history is going to be what uh, you know, makes the project, project rise and be successful. And, and I would also add the, the other piece, looking at images now of it, is the integration with the architecture. This is one of those incredible places where, as again, I think of myself as a teacher, where it's you really can't differentiate what is the architecture versus the landscape architecture. Um, they're so neatly woven together. Again, in really elegant and, and, I, and I would argue strongly humble ways uh, that are respectful of the materials and respectful of the spaces and movement through it, and and again that long history, and, and the future, and, and the Gates Foundation, what they see themselves as doing in the future. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, I just uh, the the hand drawings just caught my attention uh, right right there. Yeah. Um, there's another uh, case study in here, and I I think you might have presented it at our national conference. It's the West Campus. Residences at the University of Washington in Seattle. Mm-hmm. I think I was there for that. That's, 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 that's a yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that that was uh, led by Jennifer Guthrie, who's not here, but we all um, uh, have our hands enough in reviewing our each other's projects in the office that we might be able to answer some questions about it. Actually, ties of uh, all of us here. Mm-hmm probably the most qualified <laughs> to answer questions about. Okay, well, I'll send it out there and then we'll, we'll let everybody take a chance, take, take a shot at this here. Okay, so you said in this, uh, this chapter, it says, this project offers a model for how an urban university can strengthen its periphery through improved urban design. How did you do that? What was your strategy to do that for this project? Maybe I'll jump in a little bit on this one. You know, the, the challenge on this one was that um, you actually needed... Uh, dormitories, uh, but they weren't exactly on campus, right? They were just off campus, uh, just to the west of 15th Street, and they were being integrated into an existing residential neighborhood. And so there was uh, the desire to, one, sensitively put these large buildings into the residential neighborhoods, but two, to have some sense of uh, place for the students so they felt that they were still part of the university community. And so at the most basic level, this really started with streets. And you know, the streets are, are the things that tie urban places together. Streets are the things that connect. And so really looking at streets and converting every square inch of the sidewalk into something usable that is part of the experience that connects the students back to campus. Uh, so there's a lot of upgrading sidewalks, you know, recognizing programmatically where things happen, like you know, large areas for bus stops, or areas outside of buildings large gathering spaces and, and really linking those things together with a plant palette that was really strong. And the second, I think, was working really closely with the architect and material palette that allowed the, some of the details in the streetscape and some of the details in the buildings to look like they're part of a family of pieces that you know work urbanistically in the neighborhood, but also create a pretty subtle sense of identity, but it's a very visible sense of identity. And then thirdly is, again, collaborating with the architects on each of those dormitories either uh, has a courtyard that faces out to a space or there's pairs of dormitories that that frame a space or create a space. And so strategically, uh, at a sort of master plan level, 
working to orient those spaces in a way that helps to activate the streets so that these aren't um, these uh, new boxes that sit in the neighborhood, but there's some sense of life of the, the people that live in there. Uh, so tying all those pieces together to create that sense of community and connection uh, back to the university, I think, was the, the ultimate um, goal of um, taking all these pieces one at a time as a cohesive whole and then individually developing each parcel. Um, yeah, and I would just add that, you know, universities have done one of sort of two, sometimes three approaches. One is the gated university, right? The Columbia University, we put walls up. And, and frankly, UW for a long time was a campus. It was essentially, there were either trees and a very big slope or walls around its campus, which very distinctly said, if you're a student, you're welcome. But if you're just a resident in the neighborhood, maybe not so welcome. Um, and, you know, the other one is sort of the NYU in New York where we're all over the place and you don't really know where the university is and where it isn't. And I think this was a remarkably coherent plan that, that brought the university out into the neighborhood, as Rodrigo said. The dormitories are right there. The cafes are there. Restaurant is there. Courtyards are there. But also did it in a way that doesn't gate it off to the community. Um, but actually made it at a pedestrian scale, a human scale. So the bus stop, it's great for students, but you know what? I live in the neighborhood, and it's also a great bus stop for me, and it's convenient, and it has a place for me to sit. Um, so, And it really was that attention to streets, and one of the reasons I've been fascinated by that project since it got built is because in the end, there's... Elm Plaza is probably the most grand. It's this incredibly beautiful elm tree that used to be in the middle of a gravel parking lot. Um, and so you went from this degraded site to this iconic gathering space. But even that's not that big a space. Um, and so it's a lot of small spaces and it's a lot of attention to streetscape and street design and sidewalk design and the openings between the buildings and the sidewalk sort of things that seem minor, um, but really make up the character and the experience of the whole place. And I actually think as universities have to expand, I mean, all of our urban universities are looking for ways to expand University of Chicago to, to Stanford. And how we do that is really important. So I thought this was a remarkable way that an urban university broke open its own walls. And actually, about the same time, they took down the walls on that side of the campus and opened that up as well. Um, but didn't just extend the campus out and sort of shove residents out either. It really, it's porous space. It's really woven into the neighborhood itself and, and set a language for future um, development around the area. And it's also a good example of you know, working with the materials um, of the place. You yeah. know, this isn't this is a university budget in the neighborhood with concrete sidewalks. And Public university budget. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it does not always take. Uh, you know, we have a lot of high-profile politics yeah. that have large budgets, but you know, good design is not dependent on budget. It's dependent mm -hmm. on careful attention and, and you know, smart decisions. I think this one is a great example of that. I, I want to ask because I, I think she was talking about the conference about the farm and uh, that you set up uh, for the students. So did it work? Did you did they use it? How how does it how's it going? Indeed, that's a 
really important question about something like that. Um, the program is still going strong. Um, I know a couple of folks who are who have some involvement in the program, and I have to admit that I sort of you know stop and um, with a little bit of suspense uh, look in on it a couple of times a year. Again, that was a project led by Jennifer Guthrie um, from our side, uh, but we had a lot of discussions in the office about having a courtyard, which is, um, you're talking about the Mercer, uh, the Mercer housing with the, the UW farm, having a courtyard that's, um, that the people living in those buildings are looking at year round. And it's also right along the Burke Gilman trail, which is a very heavily used, um, multi-use commuter trail. Um, it's kind of a front door into campus. You are then dependent on that program to continue to be strong and um, figure out the soils and exposure of the site so they can, you know, figure out viable crops to grow in. The sun exposure was good, but it's still a courtyard. So there's areas that get partial sun and things like that. But um, I went by the other day and saw things getting harvested and, uh, you know, winter crops getting harvested and, um, uh, new things going in the ground. I couldn't tell what they were. I didn't want to creep anybody out, but um, uh, it's a great program. It's a student-run, I probably should have said this in the beginning, but it's a student-run um, farm program. And they have a main farm that's um, near the Center for Urban Horticulture, uh, part of a uh, kind of a big drained wetland area that's near the university that um, uh, is the legacy of Lake Washington being lowered when a ship canal was put in uh, decades ago. Um, but so they have a large, a larger main farm. And then this is kind of an experiment of what happens if you bring a piece of that program in uh, into a student housing project and into a more urban setting. So far, it seems to be working. I don't know if Taiza might have. Oh no, it's incredibly out. successful. They they have a wait list for students who who want to be part of the program because they can only put so many volunteers and students etc. into it. They produce food for one of the restaurants that's actually within the student dorm area, um, and certainly in this time when students are incredibly concerned about climate change and pollution and food systems and equity. Um, a place, you know, integrating a farm, and it's small, it's, you know, we're not feeding thousands of people from this garden, but we're, we're doing what we can and using our space in that way, I think is an incredibly important message uh, for students um, to see that the university yeah. supports their efforts at so many universities, not as much on the West Coast, more on the East Coast. You know, putting in a student farm is more a point of produce. Students find it and they take over a piece. And here what we see instead is the university coming in and, and helping to support something to go into place and to be beautifully designed. I don't want to underestimate the importance of not just a farm and we've made a bunch of beds so they can plant things, but, you know, there are walls for espaliering fruit trees. There are beautiful, it, you know, it's a gorgeous it's, it's fully designed. It's articulate and, and clearly designed. And I think, I don't know how many students really noted or remember that they noticed that, but I think they, they imbibe it by walking through. And then the various um, levels as you move down and you see the different views and you have these different experiences of the natural world 
in an urban campus, I think is also uh, an attribute of that space that I think, again, I don't know that students walk around going, oh, I, you know, that lavender, that he beautiful hedge of lavender makes my day. Um, some of my students do, but, um, <laughs> but, but I do think that it is, it is really, it's a really important part and that part of it's also productive. And I should also say that while the farm is its own piece, you know, um, Jennifer and, and the whole team that worked on this also brought herbs and other kind of fragrant and useful plants up into the other parts of the garden. And again, whether or not students are always aware of that yeah. um, is a question, but I, but I think it sends an important message. And certainly, and I've heard this from students who come from eastern Washington and the farmlands around Yakima, they recognize those plants and they understand um, that those are plants that are grown in other places um, for lots of reasons. Rodriguez, would you like to jump in on that one too again? Uh, no, I think <laughs> no bits on that one. No bits on that one. Uh, okay, well, this this book is is it's great, and uh, I know we've taken up a lot of your time today because offices are busy, and you guys have lots and lots of cool projects to work on. So I'm gonna give everybody an opportunity to uh, tell our audience uh, what fun things are you working on now. Well, maybe I'll start since I uh, didn't pipe in the last one. Um, for um, the last couple of years, um, I've been working on a series of projects for the uh, State Department. We've been doing embassies abroad, uh, the U.S. embassies abroad uh, in different parts of the world. Uh, currently, we're uh, actually on our deadline to finish up uh, our drawing set for uh, embassy in, in Nigeria, in uh, Lagos, Nigeria. Um, and it's been uh, an incredibly uh, rewarding um, effort because you know one you get to engage with different cultures and really have to wrestle with you know how do you how do you build in a completely different part of the world but also you know thinking through the logistics and the constructability and, and the, the sequencing of how does this stuff happen uh, long long distance with a very different workforce and uh, dynamic and all in, in the effort of supporting uh, our diplomatic missions abroad and very, very dedicated people who work there, both uh, U.S. citizens, but also locals who uh, work at these places, uh, and understanding those communities and you know, having a hand in shaping the place that uh, gives them uh, a safe place that, uh, you know, where this really important work can happen. It's been uh, really, really fun and rewarding. Chandler, you want to go next? Sure. Uh, well, we're just, we continue to be really fortunate to meet these incredible people through our projects and two that really um, come to my mind are uh, the Burke Museum and India Basin Shoreline Park. Uh, Burke Museum is our Washington State uh, Natural History and Culture Museum and it's located here in Seattle. It has a combination of, as you'd imagine, uh, natural um, artifacts and um, specimens, and also a tremendous uh, collection of Pacific Northwest coastal people uh, and actually Pacific Rim uh, indigenous culture artifacts and knowledge. And so this had been in a, again, it's actually on the UW campus, uh, the University of Washington campus. It had been a, a 
kind of a big closed box building with a parking lot donut around it. And now um, there's this chance to create a landscape that would surface a living version of all this history, natural and cultural history um, in the, in the museum. And so it's been exciting to me because it's been a learning process for me personally, my lens on understanding our landscape through the indigenous worldview, or at least starting to get closer to get my head wrapped around it has been mind blowing and exciting as a landscape architect, humbling, um, understanding that discovering, I'm thinking I'm in this mindset of discovering all these obscure native plants that aren't used enough in gardens and interacting with indigenous folks in the project, understanding that I'm just scratching the surface of these ancient agreements between people and these plants that they know they continue to know so well. And um, we have so much to learn. So that's exciting for me. And then India Basin Shoreline Park down in San Francisco, Bayview Hunters Point neighborhood. It's another learning process for our whole group working on it in the office. Um, primarily African-American neighborhood, multi multiple generations, um, public housing uh, neighborhoods just uphill from the side. And for decades, they haven't been able to get across the street to these waterfront sites that are now being turned into um, city of San Francisco public parks. So spatial equity and um, environmental justice. I know there are terms that are bouncing around a lot right now, but um, we've really been understanding what that means when we're working on a site that has toxic remediation involved, um, work that's involved, and um, just simply providing access um, to public space and nature and water uh, to these great um, communities. Um, so very meaningful projects to me. Yeah, so Ice. I... Uh, yeah, I'll build on that because so what I'm doing this year is I'm at Dunbar Notes and I'm um, leading a project that's funded by the Mellon Foundation. So huge appreciation to the Mellon Foundation called uh, Democracy in the Urban Landscape. And we're looking at to build on our conversation. We're looking at how our public realm, our landscapes have supported or not democracy and what that looks like. And when I think of landscape architecture, and I, I happen to be sitting here looking at an image of the National Museum of African American History and Culture that JGN did the, was the landscape architects for, how that landscape actually tells a story both it's very local and, and very specific to the Tiber Creek and to the, um, the, the specificity of the site itself and its own history, but it also tells the story of this site as part of a larger American story and the Washington Monument across. All of this is about our public realm. And to me, what I'm trying to do through this project is actually generate and catalyze new scholarship on those places and how those places have come to be and, and how they shape democracy or not um, so that we can have a better handle on why our public realm is the way it is and what ways that we can improve it and build on it. So the, the end product is hopefully lots of scholars um, around the world, but mostly around this country, uh, delving more deeply into the history of our public realm. And then a more specific is to eventually write some kind of history book about our public realm and why these sites, these landscapes, are such an important part 
of a larger and broader and more inclusive American history. Oh, that's long project. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah, that totally fits. And I can, I can see why now you chose this firm to, um, to, to study their projects and, um, and thank you. Yeah. Because this is an awesome book and, um, I want to tell the audience says they can't see it yet. They'll just have to buy the book. Uh, but, uh, it was put together really well and and very uh, informative uh, in promoting landscape architecture. Thank you so much for your interest in in the book, and I just really appreciate Thais's involvement. I can't overstate how grateful we are um, to have had her expertise and and lens on this. And uh, so I'll sign off from here. Uh, Thank you guys for being here today, ladies, gentlemen. Uh, The book for everyone is GGN Landscapes, 1999 to 2018, written by by Thaisa Wei, uh, published by Timber Press, Portland, Timber Press, Portland, Oregon, 2018. I'll get that right. Um, And again, my name is Tricia Kaffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture with a special mini-series in landscape architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Thank you for being here.